Lives can change direction on the smallest things, but what about as the result of a book? You're about to hear some amazing Australian storytellers talk about the book that changed their lives. I'm Claire Fletcher at the Walkley Foundation, and you're listening to a special edition of Walkley Talks, conversations from Storyology, our 2018 journalism festival in Brisbane. This Storyology podcast is brought to you in partnership with Bond University. Here's Adam Suckling to kick things off. The reason we set up this campaign, This Book Changed My Life, was that politicians were talking about changing laws in Canberra which undermined the rights of journalists, of writers and of publishers. And we wanted to remind them that books and writing are an important thing and that they can literally change people's lives. When we first started it, one of the authors we asked to talk said, you know, that's a ridiculously huge topic but it really lends itself to very good discussion and I hope you'll enjoy it tonight, so thank you for coming. The first session we did was in Byron Bay about a year ago. It worked very well, so we've taken the show on the road. There are some people who can't get enough of it, so Gareth Evans has done two, or he's done one and he's agreed to do another. Uh, The book that he nominated was Machiavelli's The Prince. It was very clear that he didn't like the famous five books, but he liked the riff on the famous five books, things like Famous Five Go Gluten Free. Um, Tonight, we've got a really, really terrific and really kind of somewhat awe-inspiring and slightly intimidating group of people to discuss this. On my far right is George Negus. Then next to George is Lenore Taylor. Next to Lenore is Trent Dalton, who I worked with at News. And next to Trent is Melissa Lukachenko. Um, I will give brief introductions to, to each of them, so I'll start with George. George Negus AM is one of Australia's best-known media professionals. Can I say journalist, George? With four decades of experience in Australian commercial and public television, current affairs. He's known for his work on 60 Minutes, Foreign Correspondence, Dateline, and The Project. He's worked independently producing books and factual television uh, via Negus Media International since the early 90s. His books include The World from Islam, The World from Italy, The World from Down Under, and a children's series book, Trevor the Truck. He stepped in at late notice because Peter Greste couldn't do it, so particular thanks to George. And he did tell me that some of his his books have sold over 100,000, which my wife's a publisher, I can tell you, is an enormous number of books in Australia. So well done, George. Um, Then next to George is Lenore Taylor. Uh, She is the editor of The Guardian. She has almost three decades of experience in political reporting. She has won two Walkley Awards and twice won the Paul Lynham Award for Excellence in Press Gallery Journalism. She was one of the Australian Financial Review's European correspondents in the early 2000s and she co-authored a book, I mean she's she's done a number of books, but she co-authored Shitstorm Inside Labour's Darkest Days, which examined the Rudd government's response to the global financial crisis. Next to Lenore is Trent Dalton, he writes for the Weekend Australian Magazine. He's a two-time Walkley Award winner, a three-time Kennedy Award winner for excellence in New South Wales journalism, a four-time winner of the News Awards, which are the awards that News Corporation runs for features in journalism. And in 2011, he was named Queensland Journalist of the Year at the Clarion Awards for Excellence in Journalism. His debut literary fiction novel, Boy Swallows the Universe, was published by HarperCollins. And the person who runs HarperCollins said to me, you really have to, when you read it, try and guess 
who the editor is that he sort of fictionalises in that book. So I'm going to have a go. And then finally, Melissa, who, when we, if we get some time, will talk us, tell us about her uncle, George Lucas. She is a Bunjalung novelist and an essayist. Her novel, Mullen Bimby, was published by UQP in 2013, and it won the Deloitte Queensland Literary Award for Fiction and the Victorian Premier's Literary Award for Indigenous Writing. She is also a Walkley Award winner for nonfiction, as well as a founding member of the women's rights organisation Sisters Inside. In 2016, she was awarded $80,000 by the Copyright Agency to write a book, and she's written that. It's entitled Too Much Lip. And just remember, it really is hard to sell books. They're wonderful things, so if you feel like buying one... It's not one, hard to sell two. my books. Oh, good. <laughs> Excellent. Thank you, Melissa. And Trent's too. Okay, without any further ado, I will cut straight to it. So, look, my first question, I'll put it to George, is, George, what is the first book you remember either buying or reading, and why do you remember it? Does it, does it have to be one that I read? No, George, you just... Whatever, whatever you Snuggle, want to answer. Snuggle pie and cuddle pie. <laughs> so I didn't read it, but it was read to me, and it stuck in my mind, uh, the gumnut fairies, as they were called. And that was probably the first thing that I saw that was probably a book. There weren't a lot of books in my household. Who read it to you then? Probably my grandmother, I'd say. Mm-hmm. I've never forgotten that because you know, I got enamoured by the gumnut fairies themselves. And even though I probably was too young to even understand what was being said about the Australian landscape, etc., and the bush, etc., it stayed with me. When, I, when, when you said that you were going to ask me about the first book that you'd read or the first book that you had any association with, I had to rack my brain, but it didn't take long to come up with that. And I don't know, other than Bigglesworth, mm. can I remember any other book from that period in my life. Why do you think you remember it? Because of the pictures. Yeah. I mean, that they, they meant something. You actually could, uh, and I'm finding now that I'm a grandparent, that my grand, grandson and his, uh, my granddaughter look at books as though they're reading them. Have you read that book to them? I've read a lot to them, yeah. And in fact, those children's books that we wrote, because, you know, were very important, uh, The Adventures of Trev the Truck. And that was based upon where we live in the bush. So I think books are not just to be read, but uh, sometimes they're to be uh, learned in other ways. They have a very broad scope of learning, I think. What about you, Lenore? First book you remember? The first book I can remember reading was Green Eggs and Ham. And I remember it for two reasons. One, it was when I realised that I could read. I didn't know I could read before then. And then Mum finished reading me the bedtime story and it wasn't done. And I realised that I could read it myself, which was pretty bloody amazing. You could turn the torch on under the covers and defy them. And the second reason was that those books that I got read at home or that I read myself at home, at that time it was that one and The Magic Pudding was the other one, were the first time that I kind of fell into a story. You know, at the time at school we had readers that were just so boring. I don't know if anybody here is my age, but the main characters in our school readers were called Dick and Dora. Oh. And the most exciting thing that ever happened to them was they went to the seaside. <laughs> like, they were dull. They were seriously dull characters. They managed to survive a long time. In oh, the Lord, they were so For dull. For obscure reason. And, um, and so, you know, Green Eggs and Ham was crazy... And the magic pudding had such fantastic, like Albert, the mean little put, sneaky little pudding, and, and you know the <laughs> bandicoots carrying the watermelon, and you know, and from a kid's point of view, that complete logic of having a picture of 
bunyip blue grum and uncle waddleberry from the front and from the side like that's logical right and so i remember those books and that time because it was when i started to discover literature did you read those books to your kids yeah absolutely in fact my copies of them from then the same ones wow what about you trent um, yeah, the most vivid one, I'm in Sandgate, I'm living with my grandparents and I'm reading the Greg Matthews biography. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, at, yeah, 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 it's, uh, so like I probably read, yeah, a few smaller ones before that, like kids ones, but the really, like I was this massive fan, 1986, Greg Matthews had a great year in cricket, he actually won the, the World Series like one day player of the year and I was this huge fan and it had this sort of, it was just this really, cut. it was a picture book basically. And it had Greg Matthews doing all these wacky things that he used to do. And well, he was the only, the only hippie cricketer to play for Australia. That's exactly right. He was like this hippie cricketer. He brought such life. And, he, you know, he was friends with the hoodoo gurus. and he, he, uh, Earring and everything. He had the earring. He the, did. He was so flamboyant and to a kid. Like, yeah, in Sandgate, Brisbane, he was just something truly exotic. And I remember just yeah, drinking right. that book up. Have, have you, if you read that book to your kids, sort of they go, oh, Dad, <laughs> yeah. come on. No, well, now it's a, Who is this he's, he's a bit of a source of like, yeah, my, my brothers pay out on me for my love of Greg Matthews. We always do this thing over beers. We, we name our, you know, top 11 and I always throw in Greg Matthews as my spinner. The controversial like, choice. You, yeah, yeah, very controversial, even over like Warney sometimes. And it's just oh, like, come on. Well, yeah, that's madness. Or... I know that'd be madness. <laughs> but yeah, the Greg Matthews biography was ridiculous. But it helped me read, you know, you, you learn to read by reading those things. I read a lot of sports books when I was a kid. I read uh, Alan Border biography and then you move on to the Rugby League Heroes and the Alfie Langer biography and suddenly you're reading and then, you know, the next book you might read might be Steinbeck. I went to the same school that Alan Border did many years after No him, way! And people would, in the maths books, which got recycled over 10 and 20 years, write Alan Borden it. And oh. someone in the class would go, I've got Alan Border's book! And then four other people That's would say, That's great! So I love that! <laughs> I thought I was so special. That happens with like Bernard Fanning now in Queensland or something, it must, you know, some sort of other. First book you remember reading or being read to you? Well, my father's side of the family were Ukrainian and Russian immigrants. My dad was the first child in that family born in Australia. Uncle George was born on the boat coming from Harbin through to China, through Shanghai to Brisbane. So I grew up with books in Russian in the house and... I think I was five when I was reading War and Peace, not in the original Russian, I hasten to say. <laughs> Can't. It's I not a really picture book. With green eggs yes. and ham here. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I was interested that you said Dick and Dora, Lenore, because I, I do have a vivid memory of going to school. How boring were they? Well, I found them incredibly exotic. <laughs> but these creatures were like nothing I'd ever seen. They had green grass to play on. I didn't grow up in a place that had green lawn and this kind of ironically spotless white dog called Spot, you know, spotless as in clean. And these children that had this kind of antiseptic life, and it's like, what the hell? I mean, it it really blew my mind. I I couldn't cope at all. Another book I remember from early years at school was called Misty of Shinkai because I'm a horse nut, a horse tragic. And in about grade two, I went to the library and... uh, checked out a book about Yay Thick called Misty of Shinko Teague, which is about the annual horse drive that a community in the States does to collect wild horses and swim them across to the mainland and sell them at auction. And I gleaned all that off the back cover because it was actually a book that was too hard for me at the age of seven. But I took it back to the library the next day and 
the librarian said, oh, did you like it? And I said, oh, I loved it. And she said, oh, oh, what was it about? And I just told her what was on the back cover and she accepted it as gospel that I'd read this book and that was my first example of learning to, you know, dazzle them with bullshit. <laughs> <laughs> Adam, I, I just remember that I was, uh, I was always told when I was growing up not to climb trees. Fortunately, my son is a great tree climber as a result and I gave him no incentive whatsoever. But I can remember climbing a tree and my grandmother, who was the, the, you know, the person who called, called the shots in our family, and she saw me climbing this tree and said, what do you think you're doing? Get down out of that tree. I said, you told me not to climb up. I can't climb down. <laughs> you know what I was doing? Looking for snuggle pot and cuddle pie. Oh. And I fell out of the tree. <laughs> <laughs> Never happened in the book, right? Why do you remember those two books, though, Melissa? What, what, what is it about them? I mean, War and Peace, that's... No one else has had such an impressive answer as that, except Barry Jones, who had some completely obscure thing, and I did, it was like I was reading this when I was two. Um, <laughs> why do you remember those two? I just remember the sense of bewilderment at... I can't even think of their names now, was it? Dick and, Dick and Jane. Right. Dick, yeah, Dick and Dora. I think it was Dick and Jane. No, Dick and Dora. Dick and Dora. Dick and Dora and Nip and Fluff. Yeah, Nip and Fluff, that's you right. Do, if you can't remember it, you're lucky. Yeah. <laughs> Dick and Dora do gluten-free. No, yeah. I don't. Um, I think it, it kind of encapsulated the sense of being a misfit that I yeah. always had at school, you know, coming from this weird refugee and Aboriginal family and not living in the suburbs. You know, people that lived in brick houses were quite... Um, again, quite alien to me. I knew I knew they were different. I didn't really know what they were on about or, you know, how they were different, but I understood that they weren't like us. And I think being presented with Dick and Dora as this kind of ideal and idealised family was... It was proof. It was in writing. OK, these are the other people and you're not them. So you really thought this represents a world that is I'm not part of and is kind of weird but sort of interesting, but I'm definitely not part of it. Yeah, and it was really strange to me because everyone else seemed to think, take it as given that this is what families were like and, mm -hmm. and this is what happened, mm -hmm. you know, in mm -hmm. families. Mm -hmm. All right, so we're going to move now on to the sort of, I guess, the meat of the subject, which is this huge question about a book that changed people's lives. And I'll just go in the same order. I'll ask each of our panellists just to talk about the book, I'll start with George, why it changed their lives, what was important for them and then each person has agreed kindly to read a two or three minute extract and talk about why that extract sort of summarises the book or is particularly meaningful for them. So George, can I go to you first please? Yeah, I have to be very honest and say I had great difficulty picking one book. So I picked five but I picked one that I'll read from. <laughs> It, I, found, I found every time I thought of a book, I thought, I'm going to get up to 20 before I know what I'm doing here and going to be all the most important book that I've ever written, ever read. However, I, I jotted down the other ones so that I didn't forget it because they are interesting in, the, in, them, in themselves. I have to say, that, <laughs> oddly enough, that the Bible was one of the most important books. I wouldn't say I read it or had read to me, but the, the reason that the Bible was, and I'm not a, I'm not a religious person at all, I was at one stage of my existence and then I found that I grew up and the religion went out the window for me when people started asking me to believe things by faith. However, I, the Bible was very important because I don't think, had I not had to intellectualise my way through the Bible or out of the Bible, I'm not absolutely sure I would have thought about much at all. Mm -hmm. And so in a funny way, an ironic way, 
I'd have to acknowledge the Bible as being very, very important to my upbringing and my past and my middle, middle years and now my old years because it did make me think more than I'd thought about anything. I was at high school at the time and I first started feeling this religious sort of emphasis that was being placed upon everything in this part of the world at that time. I mean, Queensland at that time was a great place to live, but you wouldn't want to think there. Sorry about that, but I think you know what I mean. We're talking about me in my teens, early teens, and J.B. Elkie Peterson, etc., and 23 and years Rona of... Joyner. Pardon? And Rona Joyner. And Rona Joyner. <laughs> and 23 years of conservative politics, and so you didn't do a lot of thinking. You were told not to. So had I not had to think my way through the Bible, I'm not sure I would have become a reader of much, mm -hmm. and I'm not sure I would have thought about much. The other book that I did read was called Gaza First, and I've been interested in the Middle East and Middle East politics ever since, and I met the man who who was responsible for the Oslo Peace Accord. We became quite close friends, and meeting him taught me so much about the Middle East, which is now an important part of my professional and personal life. The other one that I thought I'd throw in just for the hell of it is, is how football rules the world, and by football I mean football, not those two games, or three games, played with those stupid egg-shaped things, uh, the round ball. And because there is a book actually called, and I challenge people to actually buy it and see what it means when it says how football rules the world. Football matches of that, that particular code have stopped wars. Mm. Probably caused a few as well, but, but on the field. But the ones off the field have been stopped so football matches could take place. And football become a, become a bit of an obsession with me as a result. And I was on the board of the national body. I'd just come back from seeing Socceroos play in Russia. Mm. And it's because I believe it's not really a sport. It's a, a human phenomenon. It touches on so many lives in the world. If there are 7 billion people in the world, it touches on at least 3 to 4 billion of those people, either directly or indirectly. And so if you're looking for something really weird and out of place, buy a book called how football rules the world. And who did you think would win the World Cup at the beginning? I didn't think Australia would. I'm not that mad. <laughs> well, that's said that's that, brave I, I, prediction. I actually hoped that France would win so that we could justifiably say that we scared the living daylights out of them and when we played them in the first game in the competition and we got robbed, quite frankly. I know all fans say that, but we did and it's now acknowledged that we did and France went on to win the World Cup. So I'm be able, able to say as a football fanatic that we gave the world champions, the current world champions, their hardest match. And we got robbed when Italy beat us that year and they yeah. went on to win the World Cup. That's right? because, uh, oh yes, and had we made through because they took a... Remember the guy died? Yeah, oh, well, I was there when it happened. <laughs> and they went on to win the World Cup and they beat us 1-0 with a foul goal. And I've now been saying, had we gone right through for all we know, Australia, which is football third world, I don't know what this has got to do with books, except I read a lot of books about football, Football third world, Italy are football royalty, right? And we could have won the World Cup. To which a mate of mine from FIFA said to me, would never have happened. They would have found some reason why you couldn't give the World Cup to Australia. That's ridiculous. So uh, the, the book that I actually do want to talk about at some stage, if I've taken too much time on this, is not the John all, Fowles George. book, right? And you probably all know John Fowles as a, a writer of novels. Melissa's actually mentioned The Collector, but The French Lieutenant's Woman, The Magus... Mago, you know, you go, it goes on and on and on. At the front of the book, there's about 10 of them. He's died a, not, not too late, well, in the early 21st century. But this book is the only book that he's written that's not a novel. It's actually called the Aristos, which is in broad terms a Greek word for individual. And I read this when he was still alive 
And it blew me away because I'm a political animal. I acknowledge myself as a person who thinks a lot of things are going on in the world politically because whether we like it or not, it's politics is still, on most situations, the best way we can solve problems without killing each other, even though we're getting worse at that, not better at it. And his book grabbed me because it seemed to be about things that I was saying, but it wasn't done in political speak at all. And when I get to read that piece that I'll read, you'll see what I mean. Pals believed that the individual, which made a lot of people on the right of politics in particular, believe that this meant that the individual was more important than governments and more important than this and more important. He didn't mean that at all. He meant how the individual fits into society as a whole. And this book, I told somebody earlier, I had about six or seven copies of this book. I now have one. I had to go and buy another one, not for this occasion, but previously so I could have one on my shelf. So I did. People would come and borrow my book and I'd never see them again. Because it's a book that was an attempt by, as he says in his opening paragraph, and it it's probably almost says it all. This book was first published against the advice of almost everyone who had read it. <laughs> they told him not to do it. It would be bad for his image. And it was too forthright and too frank and too critical and too politically obvious. And I thought, well, you know, I like to think of myself as a political person in many ways. Maybe this guy's able to say it without almost mentioning politics. He mentions life as being like politics. And all the things that we do to try and make life more fair and just, etc., come about as a result of the way we fit into society ourselves as individuals. I've talked to you long about the other four, and this I'm prepared to pick it up later. If oh, you go like. on, mate. Yeah. No, I think... You like to read some now? Okay. You should read something. I'll read something. I read one paragraph, but I was going to get away with that. Okay, let me go on then. He says, um, to the obstinacy, because he ignored completely all these people who told him he shouldn't write this book. And he had lots of best-selling novels behind him, and I said it would wreck his career. He said, so um, I uh, have been unscrupulous obstinacy, but to the obstinacy I must plead guilty, but not a lack of scruple. And he goes on to say... Well, because I'm taking great chunks of this is the reason I was hesitating, because it's not really a book that looks like a book. It's lots and lots of, if you like, chapters, and even then he bounces around all over the place. So I've had to find chunks from here and there. One of them in particular that I would read to you now, because there are lots that I could read. I've marked all these in some strange way, because that's the way the book is. And if, you've, if I know it's people who love books would probably hate what I do, but the, journalistically I found myself writing all over books. And sometimes I tore pages out of books and put them in folders until I got all the information I needed from about 10 different sources. But this is the one that really stuck with me. The tension between the poles of poverty and wealth are one of the most potent in our societies. It is so potent that many poor would rather remain poor with the chance of becoming rich rather than be living in a society and a world where it doesn't matter whether you are rich or poor. Now, that almost said everything that I've been thinking about as an individual. What is it about the world? And he, he decided the world was obsessed with money. And that's one of the paragraphs that I would have read to you, and I, that stuck with me already, and it never, never left me. We're obsessed with money, and we judge people according to how much money they have or they don't have. Money and fame, he also mentioned, which is a pretty, a pretty loaded thing to say to somebody who's been in the media for so long, been called silly things like celebrity, etc. But he said, for some obscure reason, the people who've got a lot of money 
And the people who are allegedly famous are the people that matter. And he said he was working towards a society where he decided the only thing that made any sense was democratic socialism. <laughs> he also said that he thought socialism shouldn't be the proprietor only of the of workers' unions. We're long past that, he said, he believed, that we don't need to have necessarily believing that the only people who have got any heart and soul are people from the working left, as distinct from people who believe in left-wing politics or something that's not necessarily right-wing. And he was a political genius, wasn't he, because of his prediction? He was. Which, what was the prediction that you said? He said that, he wrote the book in 64, I think, yeah? Yeah, yeah a long while ago. And said that in 1989, either communism or capitalism would fall. Yeah, well, that, that prompted me to think that the only difference between communism and capitalism is that the communists have admitted they were wrong and the capitalists haven't got around to it yet. <laughs> it's about the only difference if you think about it. It changed my life because it, it probably, I, it, I read it before I would, would describe myself as being somebody who was professionally and personally involved in politics and regarded as a very important way of going about life. But this bloke seemed to write about it without even, hardly, there's only, I had to go looking for those things about it being money being the problem and democratic socialism being the only form of running a country or running a world that he could think made any sense whatsoever. But that would have probably been in 1964, I was 22. So I wouldn't have read it then, but I probably would have read it by about the time I was 30 when I'd just become a journalist, interestingly enough, because I jumped the fence from high school teaching to journalism. And the reason I did that was because I heard that they pay you money for asking questions. <laughs> and you get to travel and do stuff like that. And I also decided that you know, school teaching in Queensland at that time point in my life would have driven me crazy. So I went to print journalism and then to television and the rest you can read in the August magazines like New Idea and Woman's <laughs> Weekly and... <laughs> TV week. I had to get away from what I was doing to actually realise another world out there. I, I can actually remember when I decided to go and come back home from overseas where I was, I'm so old and stupid, we camped, we didn't backpack. We and I was camped in, near the Berlin Wall and I saw two young men walking on either side of the Berlin Wall, one with red epaulettes and the other one with green epaulettes and bands on their caps, reds for the East Germans, green for the West Germans. They both had, one had a Klasnikov, the other one had an M16 and I thought they could be twins and they're going to kill each other. So I went and started reading about things like politics of an inter at the international level. I ended up knowing more about international politics than about um, Australian politics for quite some time. But I came home and became a journalist, conned my way in actually. I don't know how I got to be, and by the way we were talking about people and journalists and qualification etc earlier. I happen to have a diploma in journalism. <laughs> to go with my arts, my, the rest of my arts subjects. For my, in my generation, somebody to have a diploma in journalism is ridiculous. I don't think anybody ever asked me for it. I don't think anybody ever looked at it. I don't think it ever had any impact upon what I did whatsoever. But I read a lot of other things I can tell you, which is why I do find it difficult to nominate specific books because I, was, I became a, how can I, how can I put it? I, I, just, I found, I went looking for it even before IT. I found a way not to Google but to go to libraries and things and read stuff, photocopy them, turn them into my own forms of books in a way. Mm -hmm. And, and I, I've often felt I should have probably read more novels. I did read some of Vale's novels and I enjoyed them and then I made them into movies and that made it even easier. And in fact when I became a school teacher and I tried to teach kids some books, I tried to introduce them to Vowles and things like that. 
And what I found was that where I was teaching school in Anala, which you people now probably call Glenala, there were no books. Mm. So I went through the book list in year 12 where I was teaching English and I went through the whole book list and found as many books as I could that had been turned into movies. So my then uh, partner, long before I met Kirsty, my, the mother of my children, we used to take these kids to the movies at night time from Inala into the city and then we allowed them to have a milkshake afterwards and then put them on the train and sent them home until somebody complained that we actually took them to see Lady Shadley's Lower on one occasion. <laughs> and a few parents complained and that didn't stop. So my experience with books is really interesting. I mean, I, I, I read ferociously. But the whole idea of sitting down and reading a book from cover to cover, something usually happens in my life professionally, let alone personally, but more professionally, that takes me away from something. Once, but, but I never, I always go back to it. So my reading's erratic, to say the, say the least, and it's, mm. it's become a, such an important tool, reading, as a thing from books, yeah. that even now I do. George, the, the, the difficulty we're having you all on is we could talk to each of you all night. Yeah. So I, no, no, <laughs> we would like to. If, if people want to stay another four hours, I'll put it to the room. But I'd like to move on, if you don't mind, to Lenore and ask no, her do. the same please question, do. which I asked you, which is, tell us, please, Lenore, about a, a book changed your life, why, and read some pages from it. Sure. So, uh, like George, I struggled a bit with the question, and I think maybe I took it a little bit too literally. I started thinking, beside my side of the bed, I have a kind of pin board with pictures of my loved ones and bits of things that I write out from books, like passages that I love. And on there for about, I don't know, 35 years, there's been a passage from Female Friends by Faye Weldon about living in the moment that I really love. And more recently, there's a passage from The Road by Cormac McCarthy and a poem in German that I love very much. But none of those things really changed my life. They were more sort of reminders of how I would like to live my life. So I kind of discounted them on that basis, possibly taking it too literally. Then I lit upon Ruth Park's autobiographies. There's two parts to her autobiography, one called Fence Around the Cuckoo and one called Fishing in the Sticks. I read her novels, um, particularly the Harp in the South, novels when I was a teenager and I'd also read The Shirley. Absolutely loved that. It's an amazing piece of writing. And so I was kind of interested to know about her life. At that point in my life, I was probably in my early 20s, I had just kind of assumed that I would never marry. Not because I had a terrible sort of experience of marriages around me. My own parents' marriage was a very happy marriage. It was just that the lives that the women got to have in those marriages was nothing like the life I was planning for myself. And so that just wasn't going to happen. But when I read Ruth Park's autobiographies about her marriage with Darcy Nyland, I saw this picture of a marriage that was based on a love of books and writing and literature. And I kind of stored that away. I thought, okay, well, if it could be like that, then, you know, maybe... Ten years later, I met my husband and that was like 23 years ago and he's a journalist and an author. So she first gave me the idea that that might be possible and kind of opened my mind to the possibility that, you know, maybe marriage wouldn't be such a bad thing after all. And she also, in her books, has this motif of risk-taking that you... She writes so beautifully. It's got this very uncluttered, unfussy, clear 
sort of unencumbered writing style that I really like. And and she keeps coming back. She grew up in New Zealand and she had a friend who was a Maori man and he taught her this phrase in Maori that means, that translates as, he who climbs the cliff might die on the cliff, so what? Which basically means, yeah, you've got to have a shot. You've got to take a risk. And she applied that to her decision to meet to marry Darcy Nyland because she'd been pen pals with him. She'd come to Australia from New Zealand and met him and then he kind of wrote to her and said, what about we get married? And she had this kind of aversion to marriage as I had had but the same sorts of reasons like, oh, do I really want to do this? And then she thought, no, nah, okay, we'll take a risk, you know, like I may as well take a risk. She also applies the same philosophy later on to coming to Australia to get a job and I think that resonated with me or I sort of thought about that phrase five years ago when I was jumping from Fairfax because I was worried about the future of journalism and because I really wanted to help set up another voice in Australian journalism and it was a risk you know I left a very comfortable job at Fairfax to try to help set up Guardian Australia because I really really believed that we needed another voice in Australian media and that was, a, well, that was another risk that paid off. So I like Ruth Park because she opened my ideas, my mind to the possibility of getting married and I'm very glad I did. And because she taught me that risk-taking was a good thing to do in life. Well, that Six. is a terrific answer. Will you read a passage and tell us why, when you've done, you selected it okay, and I'm why you like the writing? The for me? Okay. So she's saying to herself, I don't want to get married. I don't want to get married. Marriage was a mysterious thing to me. Obviously, it contained within itself a certain suspension of accepted rules. Husbands and wives treated each other differently from the manner in which they treated the rest of the world. And she goes on to talk about um, a friends of hers who one was sort of went insane in a marriage and was committed, one was deserted. So I wrote my last letter to Darcy explaining why I was so wary of marriage. What I got back was a cable, don't be a bonehead. How impossible to describe why such a cable was so reassuring. But it was. Thereafter I took for my banner those words Harry Torby, the merry man, had brought to my mind. He who climbs a cliff may die on the cliff, so what? Always a risk taker by nature, now I became one by intent. And then there's one other passage. In fact, my reason for emigrating to Australia was primarily pragmatic. Though a well-qualified journalist with a small success as freelance in international newspaperdom, I had a fatal defect. I was a woman. In my native country, I had ample evidence that I would never be allowed to hold a prestige position or indeed be given a quality assignment. The most I could hope for was, at the age of 50 or so, an appointment as lady editor, when I would spend my time describing the dreadful frocking at the Easter Racing Carnival. Also, I was deeply, permanently insulted by being paid what was two-thirds of the male rate, though it was more like half, solely because I had ovaries. Bugger the lot of them, I said to myself. Working on newspapers teaches even the convent-bred girl to swear. Then out of the blue, I was offered a job on the San Francisco Examiner. However, my plans were wrecked by the Japanese assault on Pearl Harbor, after which all civilian travel was officially cancelled. Go to Australia, said my father. There's little for you here. Go. My law of life was an ancient proverb, he who climbs a cliff may die on the cliff, slow what? Still, I had enough Scots hard-headedness to obtain two firm offers of employment on Sydney newspapers before I departed with a capital of £10 for an unknown future. I was flatting or sharing a house with a dear friend when I read these books and I um, read her that passage because it, you know, it struck me at the time. 
and she remembered it. And all many, many years later, she was, I asked her to give a speech at our wedding and she chose that passage to talk to me. We hadn't discussed it in the intervening 20 years. And for our wedding, she went to the Manly Library. They had a fundraiser. They were selling bricks. You could inscribe something in a brick outside the Manly Library. And she inscribed on the brick our names and the date of our wedding and risk takers. And the person who sold it to her was Darcy Nyland and Ruth Park's daughter. Wow. So you said, Lenore, like, like you've done such a terrific job in introducing that and explaining why it's important. I'm almost kind of lost for words. But you said there were two things uh, that it did for you. One was to, you know, take risks and to marry Paul eventually. What about the journalism thing? Did that, when you read it, did you think, hmm, maybe that would be a thing to do? Already by that time I was intent on being a political journalist. That sort of started when I was about mm, ten. Where did that come from? So I grew up in Maruka and I won a scholarship to Girls Grammar just down the road here. My dad would drive me every morning and we had to listen to AM and he asked me questions before I could get out of the car. And that got me interested in politics. Wow. That's brilliant. Which I think most politicians probably rue that day, Lenore. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <coughs> Trent, I think you know the drill. Okay, yeah, Same yeah, yeah. I'm others, aware. Please. I'm aware, yeah. Yeah, my book's John Steinbeck's The Grapes of Wrath. I'm imagining some, a lot of people out there have probably read this. It's very, very personal for me, and I'll try and get through this as quickly as possible. Um, I've just written this book called Boy Swallows Universe, right? And it's all about this 13-year-old boy. His name's Eli Bell. He's being raised in the outer western suburbs of Brisbane by two dangerously successful drug dealers. They're heroin dealers. He loves this one guy in particular who this my well I say my because it's yeah it's, it's my life but uh, but uh, the, the kid in the book has sort of his mum's fallen in love with the the wrong guy right and this world of theirs just gets completely obliterated when some elements to that job being heroin dealing catch up catch up with them and uh, his guardians the loves of his life his mum and this 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 fella named Lyle they get taken away um, by the law and other dangerous men and the kid is compelled by a telephone call he receives in a secret room which belongs to this guy Lyle that he's dug out as a bit of a safe room and he receives this mysterious phone call and this front, inside this secret room is this red telephone and this phone call compels the kid to go save his mum's life on Christmas Day by busting into Boggo Road Women's Prison. Once he's done that he gets hauled over to Brackenridge on Brisbane's north side to go to basically be raised by his dad. Now this is all pretty it sounds ridiculous, I know, but it's, a lot of that is, was sort of born from fact. And, you know, the, the, my life was from when I was like four to eight in the 1980s. I was raised by my mum and a man she fell in love with who went away to Boggo Road Men's Prison for 10 years for dealing drugs across Queensland very successfully until the time he got busted and went away. And, and my three older brothers, beautiful guys named Jesse, Ben and Joel. Joel being the eldest who I consider King Arthur and I actually consider Tom Joad. We get hauled across to Brackenridge Housing Commission to be raised by our dad for 15 years, right? And it's all in the book because he's basically a character named Robert Bell in the book, This Guy, My Dad. And my dad in real life, he was a voracious reader and a dangerously voracious reader because it's really dangerous to not have any, any more needs in life than a good book and a rolled cigarette. You know, that's a, that's a dangerous mix. If you don't have, if that's the best of life, you know, that's the thing you enjoy most. And that's a cheap way of living. And uh, 
But dangerous for that person or dangerous for those around him? Yeah, it, dangerous town, you know, for him and, and his kids, yeah. Well, there goes yeah. consumer capitalism for a start. <laughs> well, that's it. Like, it's like, all, and, and all we had in this house, right, was just books. And we'd shift from different place to place, housing commission place to housing commission place. And Dad would leave, like, hundreds of books. And I'd say, Dad, what about all the books? And he's like, no, someone else can read them. He was just addicted to reading. He read, like, nobody's business. He would have, he'd wake up, and he'd have a doorstopper novel that he has to read, right? He'd get up and he'd roll himself 20 rolled cigarettes and lay them out on the bed and progress to smoke them and read the book during the day. He had a lot of demons, like he was clearly tr a troubled man, a beautiful guy, but, you know, and, and he, he channeled these demons into two places, Forex, Bitter and Books. And it was good the days he was reading the books. Anyway, this is all getting towards a place where in this Brackenridge house, I'm listening to a band called Rage Against the Machine, everyone great 90s rock and roll band they had a song called the ghost of tom joad right like that no well it well it was a springsteen it was song. a springsteen yeah. it was a cover of a springsteen song <laughs> and i i knew it from the rage against the machine version right so they're singing about this guy named you know tom joad and it's and a fantastic song i remember being in nuku over in tonga listening to that and just tell yeah. me you feel that tell me the feel like it gives you a feeling the, the ending the ending oh you, okay. you have to listen to it Melissa, you're amazing. We haven't teed this up, I swear to God, because it's the ending of that song that I want to talk about. <laughs> Zach De La Rocha starts going nuts, right? He starts going like, look in their eyes, Maurice. Now, he starts talking about this book, right? He's deeply inspired. Well, it's Springsteen. Springsteen first is deeply inspired, and Zach's channeling Springsteen. Actually, oh. Sonora Bab was inspired before Steinbeck, but we'll get to that later. Because Steinbeck did rob from her a bit, I hear. Or so, yeah, Quite, that, absolutely, and she yeah. lived in poverty as a result. Yeah, that's all. you need to do a, a follow-up to this because, yeah, please. Yeah, because basically this book is about Steinbeck writing about the Dust Bowl in America and the family, the Jodes, really have to get out of Oklahoma and they want to go to California to really kind of start their lives over again and actually survive. Like, it's literally need-to-feed-their-stomach type situation. And this guy, Tom Jodes, just gotten out of prison. He tracks his family down, meets back up with them and... I'm reading about this, right? So, so basically, I'm listening to Rage Against the Machine, and you know, later on, I get older, and I'm, you know, I love this song. And my old man's like, you know, that song you keep singing and you love, you know, it's actually steeped in a really important book named The Grapes of Ra. And you know, he tells me this when I'm a teen. I'm probably not, I'm not anywhere near old enough. I'm such an idiot in my t late teens that I don't really even. I'm still reading bloody Greg Matthews biographies, <laughs> and it's probably until about I'm 21 when I really read this and really got it and when it changed my life because I was just starting out as, as a journo on the Brisbane News, the glossy colour magazine here you guys might know. And I start reading about this guy named Tom Joad and this family, the Joads, and I'm starting to see the Daltons, I swear to God. These Okies in America are suddenly becoming the Daltons of Brackenridge. And, um, and it was the most moving thing because this guy, Steinbeck, is kind of, he's not celebrating it, but he's just tapping into the kind of real a working class sort of feel that I felt growing up in my teens and a, a sense of poverty and kind of, you know, in this house in Brackenridge was pretty shitty sometimes. I don't want to pull the violin out, but, you know, it was like St. Vinny's parcels for Christmas and stuff. But these Jodes, the way they get through that, through their, their love and decency and, um, and, and sort of camaraderie and humour, but... Ultimately, the thing that changed my life is the last two pages of this book. Which he definitely stole from the American communist and journalist Sonora Babb. 
who lost her job on, I think, the New York Times in 29 in the Great Depression and then eventually ended up working for the US federal government, helping the Okies, the Dust Bowl refugees, by hooking them up with programs that could help them in some small way. She kept copious notes and was writing a novel because she was a novelist as well as a journalist. And her boss, a man called Tom Collins, who was a prick of the highest order and a friend of John Steinbeck's, stole her notes, her research, her intellectual property, and handed it to John Steinbeck without telling Laura Babb that he was doing that. Steinbeck took the material and ran with it and Sonora was about, she was in touch with a publisher in New York. They'd flown her to New York to write her novel. And when Steinbeck's came out, she was almost finished her novel and the publisher turned around and said, look, you can really write, it's a great book, but the material's exactly the same as what John Steinbeck's just published, so sorry, see you later. And she was a very bitter woman about it. And also had a Chinese husband who she couldn't marry for years and years and years because of miscegenation laws in the States. So they lived as neighbours in the US and it took them four, uh, three days to find a judge who would actually marry them once the miscegenation laws were changed. But yeah, John Steinbeck ripped her off in a very... Um Trent, you... Well, <laughs> yeah, uh, my other hero is Eddie Vedder from Pearl Jam. You got, a, you got, any, you got any insight on yeah. Eddie Vedder? I'm walking out of here, but no, like it does... Eddie go way back. What about no. Millie Vanilli? I mean, yeah. And if you say, say if, yeah, that was real, man. That was really their voices. When he was smoking, what sort of books did he read? Oh, yeah, it was stuff like this, and um, you know, big, but really like it was everything, George. It was um, it was, it was you know, Wilbur Smith to Ludlam to Steinbeck to you know Cormac McCarthy to Tolkien, like like anything, like really just. Deep. It was that kind of thing of just escapism, really. My granddad, Vic, was a rat at the brook, real hero, right? Got shot in the leg, fell down in a battle called Operation Bulimba, one of the most horrendous battles of El Alamein, just in the lead up to El Alamein. Got saved by a man named Reg Coyne and Johnny White, right? Who sling their, their rifles and go out into the fray and pick granddad Vic up and throw him over their shoulder, right? Reg Coyne, to get over this German Constantina wire, there's only one way to get over it without the British tanks, which didn't arrive. You have to get one guy to lay over the wire and then you carry someone and you walk across the guy who's laying over the wire. And in the process of doing this, Reg Coyne, beautiful Queenslander, gets shot and killed. And my granddad comes back with one leg and, you know, my old man grows up with all those stories and wants to give to Australia as well, joins the National Service and about to go to Vietnam, but they pull the troops out. He's had vaccines and everything. He's already done the training and stuff. And that was his destiny, but it didn't happen. And I think that's just one element that sort of messed with him. And so, yeah, he just sort of had all these demons, had all this stuff going around about his path changing a little bit. But all through that time, yeah, just like reading and reading and reading and passed all that on to us, yeah. And it's like... But there's, there's a guy, you know, and it does... It really hurts because, you know, to hear Melissa say that stuff because Steinbeck is a real hero of mine. So I'm going to really... I promise you I will look into that. I know, I don't, like, I don't take it lightly what you're saying because it's really... I, that's really kind of painted this beautiful, beautiful thing. <laughs> no, because like, trust me, like, I mean, however it came to be, I do think it's a work of true beauty and... Oh, he was a great writer. He was just an arsehole of a human being. <laughs> <laughs> Who well, would have thought? Well, Nevertheless, can we hear the, hear the last pages? So, well, yeah, well, they are the, probably the best pages to do, but I don't want to spoil it, so I, I'd encourage you to... It's Readable. a real spoiler. It's okay. such a beautiful human moment. 
it's that moment that changed my life because it's the idea that you know you don't ever sway from your own decency quite timely and sort of global stuff we're facing you know don't just become a dickhead because your life's a bit shit you know and uh, basically sorry i'm sorry that's not very eloquent <laughs> my old man's a bit of a tom joad and it's in my book he sort of in in my book the cops come to the to the kid's house in brackenridge and they've, they've got a warrant for the father's arrest and the father gives a fake name and he gives tom joad <laughs> and the the cop can't spell Joad, and so he goes, Joad, like Toad. And uh, anyway, it's a, it's a long story. But I want to tell you about this particular passage of Tom Joad. It's, it's quite... But there's sort of... There's an element to this guy, Tom Joad, that reminds me of bro my brother Joel, who's this sort of King Arthur guy who kind of took the brunt of all the dark shit in our lives. And he was this guy that would never let me sway to going down the path of, you know, not reading books or... If I ever sort of thought, you know what, I'll, I'll take the easy road and sort of be inspired by some of the elements that we saw as kids, the criminal kind of elements, he was the Tom Joad always saying, just because you've had this kind of in your life, don't ever succumb to it, you know, you should, you should look for something better. Anyway, this is Tom Joad. It's the famous bit where basically, and this is what Zach De La Rocha in the song's talking about, he's saying, he's saying uh, there's this moment, basically, it's Tom Joad, he's saying goodbye to his ma, and his ma's going, you know, when am I ever going to see you again? And he's like... You'll see me, Ma, in all, in all of, you know, basically whenever you see poverty or whenever you see hardship or, or injustice, you will see me. And uh, if, if you know the song, I'd recommend put it on Spotify and drive home. It'll, it'll really charge you up and you'll want to go do something wonderful for the world. So basically, I'll just start, yeah. Only the wind, Ma, and I know the wind. And I got to thinking, Ma, most of the preaching is about the poor. We shall have always with us. And if you got nothing, why? Just follow your hands and to hell with it. You're going to get ice cream and gold plates when you're dead. And then this here preacher says, two get a better reward for their work. Tom, she said, what you aiming to do? He was quiet for a long time. I've been thinking how it was in that government camp, how our folks took care of themselves. If there was a fight, they fixed it themselves. And there wasn't no cops waggling their guns, but they were better order than them cops ever give. I've been wondering why we can't do that all over. Throw out the cops that ain't our people. All work together for our own thing. All farm our own land. She has to take off. Then what, Tom? Then it don't matter. Then I'll be all around in the dark. I'll be everywhere, wherever you look. Wherever there's a fight so hungry people can eat, I'll be there. Wherever there's a cop beating up a guy, I'll be there. If Casey knowed, why, I'll be in the way guys yell when they're mad and, and I'll be in the way kids laugh when they're hungry. And they know supper's ready. And when our folks eat the stuff they raise and live in the houses they build, why, well, I'll be there. See? God, I'm talking like Casey. Comes to thinking about him so much. Seems like I can see him sometimes. That's just the end. But that, that particular passage just there, that's, that kind of inspired Springsteen. And he sort of wrote this incredible tune that kind of Zach De La Rocha, you know, inspired him and then inspired a kid named Trent Dalton later on to, to, to sort of get into journalism. So, wow. Yeah. It's fantastic. Look, uh, same with you. We could keep talking all night. But what we do need to move on. Thank you, Trent. Melissa. Thanks, Trent. The book that changed my life is The Bone People by Kerry Hume. And I'm really struck because all of us have talked about books that we read when we were about 22. I think I might have been, t I would have been, yeah, actually I would have been 21 when an academic at Griffith Uni told me about this book, an American academic. And I was studying public policy at Lake George as, you know, a political animal from a pretty young age. 
there's a line in something George Orwell wrote once that he said that I had to be a writer, I was meant to be a writer and at the same time I had an equally strong conviction that it, I didn't know it wasn't going to happen, it was ridiculous and how do you be a writer? And when I read George Orwell saying that it, it really chimed with me because I was studying public policy and loving it but the world that I knew would not fit inside the PhD that I was supposed to do. And when Elaine McCoy handed me this book, I learnt from it that there was space in the world of letters for an Indigenous woman's voice and a voice that was unusual and kind of a misfit voice and a book about families and violence and culture all mixed up into a really beautiful casserole of meaning. So I'll just... It, the book is about an autistic child who's washed up on the shores of New Zealand after a shipwreck. He's, he's been abducted by probably by heroin dealers, but no one actually knows his backstory. And he stands as a symbol for damaged white colonial forces in New Zealand. And the other two main characters are Māori, a, a woman called Heroin and a man called Joe, who have demons of their own. And it's about the kind of strange and beautiful family that they end up making together. So Kerouin lives alone as a hermit in a tower that she built herself, a tower of stone, and Joe's a single parent of Simon, who's also known as Homona, the boy that washed up, and Joe's lost his wife and his own biological child. And the passage I'm about to read is where Simon, Homona, is a young traumatised child. He ends up in the shower... He's drunk, he's gone and gotten himself into Kerouin's grog and gotten drunk and she chucks him in the shower and it's about his thoughts and feelings uh, having survived a shipwreck. Kerouin stares. You wouldn't believe it. You couldn't. You come in feeling clean and straightened out and high on holiness and what awaits? One drunken kid, lying hunched and untidy all over the floor, snoring like a blue bottle. Two bottles overturned and alcohol rife through the air. Ah, oh, hell, look at the window. She shakes her head in disbelief. Two hours and he does this much damage? Man alive, a six-year-old debauchee. She digs him in the ribs with the toe of her foot. No response. Not so much as a blink or an off-key snore. He dreams on oblivious. It would be kind to let him sleep it off. I'm not kind. So she picks him up, her heart kicking with a kind of misgiving at his lightness, and climbs the spiral to the shower and turns the water on at needle spray and coldest. For a moment, he lies under the blast, limp as a skin in her hold. Then he jerks and screams. Highly startled, she drops him. She has never heard him scream before. He screamed. My God, could he scream? He's a fluent screamer. It's a high, fierce, agonising to the ears sound. The child goes on screaming. He starts to fight the cubicle walls, the floor, the water in a blind panic to get anywhere out. She watches, pulling back clear of his flailing arms. He's not seeing where he is. He's terrified. Then, understanding part of his terror, she reaches in and turns the spray off. The boy crouches, shuddering and retching. He is sickly white and he hasn't opened his eyes yet. Simon. It stills him a little. 
more shivering and gasping, but the screaming panic is done. So she kneels down by the shower stall and says, did you think that was the sea or something? The same water where you almost drowned. I'm sorry it was a foolish thing to do. I didn't think deeply, you see. I, I just said to myself, the urchin's riddled out of his mind. So many sheets in the wind, there's none left to steer the ship with, so get him sober fast. And, you know, like in the song, what shall we do with a drunken sailor, early in the morning? Put him in the scuppers with a hose pipe on him? Only there's just a shower here, no scuppers, no hose pipe. But it wasn't the wisest thing, I admit. He's nearly quiet now, only the occasional whimper, though his breathing rushes yet. She sighs. Actually, it was a bloody stupid thing to do, eh? God, 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 thinks Simon. It is a beat in his head in time with the drips, with the steady splat of water onto the cold steel floor under his hands, in time with the aching pulses in his thighs and back and chest and legs. But the water is nearly all out of his ears. So, okay, you know where you are now? In the tower, third floor, or are you still a bit under the weather? He puts his hand out, groping blindly. Sorry about that, Hymona. I sure as hell didn't mean to frighten you. Wake you up roughly, yes, I was nasty. I meant to do that, but not to scare you. He shakes her hand, goes to shift, and nearly chins himself on the floor before Kerouin's grip pulls him up short. Sweet hell, boy, easy. She leans in and lifts him to his feet, steadying him. Rat-tail hair and soaked clothes, a sodden, sorry sight. Struth, fella. Talk about a joy germ, but I don't suppose you feel like smiling. She has conned that the tears are still running off his face mixed with water. I think you'd better have a proper shower, says Kerouin, then go to bed for a while. Help us undone with your clothes, Isim. It is because I am tired. He weeps helplessly. I can't stop. I can't say. I can't. We've had it, he thinks. It's finished and it's all my fault. Wow. Can I ask, it's very moving, can I ask two questions from us? So one is, well, firstly, why did you select that? There's two or three passages. And secondly, how long did it take you to sort of say, well, the public policy thing's all well and good. I'm going to stop that and become a writer after you read that book? It wasn't long at all. Well, Griffith University and their wisdom gave me a, a scholarship to do a PhD, and I can't even remember what the topic was supposed to be now, which is part of the problem, I guess. And what I did was I moved from Brisbane to Canberra, from Logan to Canberra, early on in the PhD, and it kind of fell by the wayside, but the money kept coming in from Griffith for whatever reason, and so I, I used it to write my first novel instead, Steam Pigs. And, and I could fit in a novel, I could fit in a, a Buildings Roman novel, the ideas and the, the ferocity and the passion and the blackness that I wasn't able to shove into a PhD at that age and with the kind of issues that I had going on in my life at the time. It's, it's a strange book. It's a little bit like you were saying about the Fowles book, George. It's not the normal shape of a novel. She says that herself in the foreword. And one of the reasons it's not the normal shape of a novel is because it took her 16 years to write it and every publisher in New Zealand rejected it, including there was a great quote. One of the major publishing houses in New Zealand said, undoubtedly 
Miss Hume can write, but unfortunately we don't understand what she is writing about. <laughs> <laughs> Which really tickled me when I first read it. And so it ended up being published by this tiny local collective, feminist publishing collective, called the Spiral Collective. They put a, an edition out. It sold out in a week. They did a, a second edition of 2,000 books. It sold out in three days. You know, New Zealand's a small place and word travels fast. And then a, a major US publisher picked it up. I think it was US or UK. And it went on to win the Booker Prize. Mm. But the reason I read that passage is because you can understand the narrative easily in that passage and it's a key turning point in the book where the boy is saying, I've ruined it, I've ruined it, I'm too tired, I can't stop what's about to happen and the reader doesn't understand that what Carolyn's about to discover. I won't do a spoiler. And it's informed my work because it's, she's talking from a deeply cultural place about damaged families and how they can heal, which is exactly what I'm talking about in my novel Too Much Lip. All right, on that sort of sober, thought-provoking note, I'd like to thank all of our panellists for really engaging this topic, for doing their homework, for bringing their books, and for being so generous and, I think, very honest with their answers. So could you please join me and thank them all. Thank you, George. Thank you, Lenore. Thank you, Trent. Thank you, Melissa. listening to the Walkley Talks podcast. If you dig it, sign up for our newsletter at walkleys.com slash subscribe for all our announcements, stories and updates. If you enjoyed this episode of Walkley Talks, you can subscribe on iTunes or your favourite podcast app. You could also consider chucking us a few dollars at walkleys.com slash donate. This podcast was produced for the Walkley Foundation at the 2SER studios in Sydney, Australia and supported by Bond University. Catch you next time.